Welcome to the Women's Health Podcast. I'm Marika Hart from Herosphere. And I'm Anthony Lowe, the Physio Detective. Together we interview leading authorities, answer questions and share our thoughts to provide the general public with the best quality information we can find on all aspects of women's health. Please remember that our materials and content on this podcast are intended as general information and for entertainment purposes only. They are not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Now it's time to get cracking with the episode. So whether you're out walking your dog, driving the kids to school or just sitting back enjoying a glass of wine, we hope you enjoy the show. Hello everyone and welcome to the Women's Health Podcast. This is Marika Hart from Herosphere and today I'm interviewing an, an extra special guest who some of you may have heard of. <laughs> We've got Anthony Lowe, the physio detective who is the other host of the Women's Health Podcast who is today under the spotlight and will be um, interrogated by myself. Welcome Anthony. Thank you very much Marika. Lovely to be here on the show. Oh, you're such a you're such an honoured guest. Um, today, Anthony and I are going to talk about lifting. We're going to talk about lifting weights and pelvic floor dysfunction, and maybe I'm sure Anthony's going to you know bust some myths and um, throw some ideas around that might make me cry, or um, or I might cheer. I don't know. I don't know what he's going to say. Um, we have we have not rehearsed any of this. We have I've not even given him any questions. So we're just going to it's going to be a bit ad hoc. You gave me like five that. minutes, and I took ten. <laughs> I let him do his hair. Um, Anthony, before we crack on with my questions, um, why don't you just introduce yourself in terms of your lifting experience? Because um, some people want to know, who, we, who are you to actually give advice about this? Sure. Um, I suppose I've been around exercise and weights since I was at university, you know, like doing exercise, doing gym work, doing sport. Um, and then when I was in the hospital system, I was using the hospital gym, which actually wasn't too badly kitted out, you know. Um, and then when I went did my master's at UWA, uh, Dave Berg <laughs> had me up at the gym every morning at six o'clock and would work out from six till seven. And he was just making me do weights. Um, but otherwise I've been working with weights pretty consistently my whole career. Um, you know, the, I, I loved exercise physiology back at university. Um, all of that stuff appeals to me. So I've been around it, but since 2011, uh, 2012 onwards, I've been doing uh, a lot of CrossFit and working with CrossFitters, Olympic weightlifters, powerlifters, and, um, it's just applying the same sort of principles to higher load situations. How, how much can you lift? At the moment, well, I picked up 200 cold the other day in a deadlift. I was pretty happy with that. Kilos? Um, yeah, 200 kilos, <laughs> I can do about 200 pounds. <laughs> no, I, I can't, walked even, up to I the can't bar. even do 200 pounds. What am I talking about? I'm exaggerating. <laughs> 200 pounds, that's 90 kilos. I reckon yeah. you could. Yeah, with, with a bit of practice, uh, it's probably good. Um, on yeah. that note, Anthony, can you, because I think a lot of people don't really understand the different types of lift, uh, lifting that are available. So a lot of people think lifting weights is kind of, a, you know, body pump or, um, but there's that whole spectrum right up to sort of the power lifters. So can you just give us a little bit of a brief overview of the differences between, you know, what we see at the Olympics and the, and the different types of power lifts versus CrossFit, F45, and then, you know, work your way down from there? Sure. 
I think um, the easiest way to think about weight being lifted is that the, the heavier it is, the less reps you're going to do. I think that's kind of obvious. Um, but, and so, you know, you go to a class like Body Pump where each track has about 100 reps, somewhere between 80 and 110 reps you'll, you'll get. And they may be partial reps, but it doesn't change the fact that they're reps. So the weight tends to be light. I used to do the squat track at Body Pump at 30 kilos. And it used to kill me, like 30 kilos, 100 squats. It's pretty heavy. Um, however, um, you, you go do things like powerlifting, Olympic weightlifting, which technically is just called weightlifting, but I call it Olympic weightlifting because people may get confused as to uh, with lifting weights. It's weightlifting is a sport. Um, you know, they, they're trying to hit. Uh, one lift they're not doing it over and over crossfit you might get those one rms uh the, the the one the one lift for the maximum that you can lift but you can also do three five or hundreds of reps um so uh, there's different varieties of lifts different range of motions different standards that you have to hit in the lift so different different sports have different rules um, in, in CrossFit, for example, it's fine to hitch a deadlift. It's fine to press out a snatch or a jerk, but in the sport of powerlifting, it's not okay to hitch a deadlift. It's not okay to press out a snatch or, a, or, a, or a jerk. So you've got to hit it and it's got to be there as opposed to get it halfway up and then press it out. That'll be a no, that'll be a, uh, a no lift. What's that? Uh, what do you in, mean by in weightlifting? Hitch, hitch your deadlift. Oh, hitch. Wait. Yeah, sorry, my fault. Uh, hitch. So yeah, getting it sort of halfway up and then working it up your legs like this. <laughs> That'll be in deadlift. <laughs> A little um, bit and of you know, some people get. <laughs> yeah. And and some people will get really possessive about this sort of standard and say that's not a real deadlift, and it's like. Well, it is a deadlift. It just doesn't satisfy the rules of the sport that you're using to measure it by. So I, I come from a broader church of, you know, if you get the weight up, you got the weight up. That's fine. But don't pretend that it's satisfying the rules of powerlifting or that the rules of powerlifting are silly. The rules are just there because they're there and everybody meets that standard. And when you compete in an area where the rules aren't as strict well then you can probably lift a little bit more and that's fine too different horses for different courses and uh yeah. hopefully everyone's kind of got that idea from anthony that the there's this you know inverse relationship between what you can lift and how many reps you're going to be doing and that's going to also affect the strategies that you're going to use for those different lifts which we will i suspect get onto in a lot more detail later um yeah. anthony because we're going to talk about pelvic health issues what tell me with the women that come and see you that are lifters and i'm so uh, let's say any kind of women women who are lifting more than you know 80 percent, for example what are the main things that they come to see you for um so there's so okay the, the first one is the easiest one and that is pain or performance so um you know, people who have pain when they lift, I have back pain, hip pain, SI pain, 
thoracic pain, whatever. So I do see lots of pain. Um, and, you know, that, that's, that's manageable because uh, usually it says do something different, you know. Uh, on my courses, I teach do something different. You do something different. You find the things that, that the pain's not associated with and you do that. Um, performance is the other one. Like um, I've seen people, they feel kind of embarrassed that they don't have pain and they're coming to see me. And he's like, no, no, I'm a legal performance enhancer. Physios, good physios are legal performance enhancers. That's what we do. We enhance your performance. So, um, you know, they'll come to me and they're plateaued out. And they're, oh, I've been stuck at the same weight for so long. I don't know what's going on. Can you check my alignment? Can you check my joints? Can you check this? And usually, um, you know, it's, it's not enough variety in their training. Um, so they're the easy ones. Then you get the, the pelvic organ prolapse. Um, pelvic organ prolapse tends to be the, the, the biggest of the pelvic floor dysfunctions. Not as many people, um, like, I mean, if they leak when they lift, that's one thing, but they tend to just keep leaking and lifting. Whereas people who have prolapse symptoms tend to just stop everything. And I just put my hand down on a cactus and I'm surprised that I didn't yell. That hurt. Well um, done. Good. That was good. Well, you know, I was, I was just flailing and it just went, what? <laughs> Sorry. This is um, <laughs> So this is definitely life. Uh, the, the pelvic organ prolapse will tend to stop somebody from lifting. Um, and that's more distressing to people than uh, losing a few drops. Obviously, if they lose their whole bladder contents, that might be an issue. And, uh, but yeah, it's certainly pelvic organ prolapse. People do get worried about diastasis, but you know, you try to ease those concerns. Postnatal checks, of course, they want to go back to lifting. So working with a women's health physio to ensure that um, the stage that they're at in their postnatal recovery um, or just their postnatal status, what, what they're like after having a baby um, is important as well. So the yeah, women... Yeah, yeah, no, that looks pretty comprehensive. Um, the women who come and see you for pelvic organ prolapse, so we go, we'll go back to that because that is the one you said you see a lot of. Uh, what, are the, what are some of the symptoms that women will, will describe to you? So how will they describe their experience with prolapse as it relates to lifting? Yeah, um, heaviness, awareness, inability to use their pelvic floor, um, fullness, the, the, the common pelvic organ prolapse words often come up. And then it's at the time, I feel uncomfortable doing that. Or it could be, look, I don't feel it when I lift, but later on I get symptoms an hour later, the next day, you know, I, I'll, I'll pay for it is what they often say. Um, so they're the two most common, common ways that we hear it. Um, you know, I've, I've even got some women who will go and check after they lift and say, oh, no, you know, I can see more bulging or, mm-hmm. or whatever. So there's a lot of awareness out there. And it's good. I think it's good to be aware. It's obviously not healthy to be overly aware of every square millimetre of what's going on down there. Mm. And not being aware at all has lots of benefits, um, but a little bit of an awareness helps. 
it's not it's about you know not pushing it to that point of hyper vigilance no i know what you mean because i do know women who check themselves multiple times a day and i think you can be, be so in excuse the expression but so in your vagina that it's actually can be quite hard to to live life um but awareness is obviously really important um by the time they come and see you anthony would they have already seen a public health physio or would you usually see them and then go send them on uh i get both i get both um sometimes people just reach out to me I, I see people online as well as in person. So people will reach out to me and I will encourage a women's health physio visit before they see me. Um, some people just don't want to do that. They go, eh, I don't really want to go down that track. I, they don't feel comfortable. They've already tried that and they didn't feel like they got, um, yeah, what's the word? They didn't feel like what they wanted to do was validated by their by their therapist they, they felt they felt like the therapist was judging them for wanting to lift um, I've had other people say well they're the only pelvic PT and the next one is five hours drive away that's kind of difficult and awkward um, so there's many different reasons why I see people without the pelvic health physio check first but I, I do like to to get that sorted either after my visit or before my visit ideally We've had that issue uh, quite a bit in conversations with Girls Gone Strong, our community members, because, you know, our, our you know, we'll always state that if you have any kind of pelvic floor dysfunction or if you've had a baby and you're going to go back to high level exercise, in an ideal world, every woman should see a pelvic health physiotherapist. And we do put this in our programs and our articles. And then there will be people who will contact us and say, look, there's literally no one with a, within eight hours drive of me. And, and that makes it really, really difficult. And sometimes they could maybe go see a continence nurse or their GP and just maybe ask for a basic pelvic prolapse, pelvic organ prolapse assessment, just to double check or make sure there's nothing obvious that's going on there. But most doctors and continence nurses won't know how to assess the pelvic floor, uh, pelvic floor muscle function um, like a pelvic health physio can do. So I, I understand it's, it's not always possible, even with, you know, we have these ideals because I know in Ant Anthony, you say in your courses, here's the information that I want from the pelvic health physio. Actually, why don't you outline that? What's the information that you find most useful? Um, the information that I find most useful, staging, staging of the prolapse is important to me. Um, where is the prolapse is also important to me. Um, pelvic floor muscle strength on the modified Oxford scale gives me some sort of idea of what's going on. If you can give me left and right, it's even better. Um, if you think there's a levator ani defect. So these are all things that you can ask your pelvic PT about and they, they either will know or they don't know. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean they're not good at what they do. It just is a thing. Not everybody does the pop Q examination style, you know, um, Anyway, that's all very technical. Bottom line for our audience who are going to go see a women's health PT is making sure that they understand what their diagnoses are and the staging and grading, what their pelvic floor is doing, whether there's um, a levator ani defect, which is where the muscle comes off the bone, um, just because it has different uh, consequences, implications for how cautious we need to be. Uh, in checking things. I also like to know the GH plus PB, which is a measure on the examination 
from the center of the anus to the center of the external urethral meatus, where you pee from, um, under a valsalva, under bearing down for six to eight seconds. Um, and Dr. Peter Dietz from uh, Sydney, yeah, Sydney, um, has, has been uh, involved in that research, uh, which correlated, which showed that that simple measurement uh, links into the size of the levator hiatus, which is an area that's not, that's not supported so much by the muscles. The muscles are around that area. And so then um, when you bear down, uh, the, the bigger that area, the more likely you are to develop a stage two plus prolapse, just depending on it. And it's not a guarantee that you will. It's just a relative risk measurement. Um, what else do I need to know? I also need to know other things that, that pelvic PTs take care of, things like constipation, allergies, uh, vomiting, um, you know, eating disorders can, like bulimia, anorexia can cause all sorts of things, hormonal things, um, all of these things, as much information as I can get will be super helpful for me. Um, and, you know, obviously current management by their pelvic PT, by their doctors, for any medical conditions at all, all of these things are super important to me to help me get an idea of what's going on. Um, and even just a subjective, like just a description of what the therapist is feeling the pelvic floor is doing. It's not very scientific -y. It's very, oh, it kind of feels like this, or it starts here, it starts. Anything I can get is better because I don't do internal examinations. And so every piece of information is like clearing up the picture that's in my head. It just makes things clearer for me uh, so that we can move forward. Um, I'd like to know if a pessary would be suitable or not. Um, and if, if you're going to trial a pessary and what type of pessary, uh, which is a device that sits inside the vagina to help support the pelvic organs. Um, and whether my clients can feel bearing down or not using a pessary or using an empty vaginal cone so that we can start getting them to be aware while lifting as to what, uh, what can help. So um, the classic example is uh, Vicky James. She's on my YouTube channel. Um, she was my Exeter demonstration patient on my course and she, uh, she couldn't pick up a 16 kilo kettlebell without feeling symptoms of heaviness. Um, there's a short video on YouTube and a long video of, of Vicky. But by the end of the weekend, we had her lifting 70 kilos, doing GHD sit-ups, doing all sorts of funky stuff, hanging from the bar, doing knee raises, leg raises, um, without any of her symptoms, which were symptomatic before. I've caught up with Vicky. She actually produced a video for us recently, um, which I have to put out there. Um, it's been, I saw her in May last year and it's, so it's been nine months maybe. And she has had a pest refitted, which is fantastic. And, you know, she told me this middle of last year, um, when she has the pest in, it's not exercise that, that she forces the pest out. 
that she's bearing down on. It's not uh, lifting weights. It's actually when she, you know, yells at the kids. Um, those sorts of things are the things that make her prolapse bulge and push and bear down and push a pessary out and um you know and even now she's saying that she's using the pessary less and less um so she's doing really really well she was somebody who was you know who was blaming exercise for her symptoms when once we sorted through everything it it, it didn't look like exercise she she knows she realizes now that exercise wasn't the problem it was just a management strategies for, for managing the pressure generated by short, sharp uh, yelling, basically. <laughs> yeah, we all have to look out for that one when our kids drive us nuts. <laughs> uh, I was going to say something. What was I going to say? Um, yeah, so it sounds, in summary, Anthony, I know you like to do the summary, but it sounds like, <laughs> if, if, if I'm hearing you correctly... <laughs> So it sounds like you're, you're, you're pulling together all this information from, an, from a subjective examination. So what the client is telling you about their symptoms and what makes it better, what makes it worse, when they're feeling it, what treatment they've had to date. You're taking in that information uh, from the pelvic health physio, which is really kind of giving you a bit of a risk profile. And it also gives you a little bit of a sense of where you can start with this client and probably an idea of how, to some degree, how far you can push them as well, because there will be some patients with a, maybe a, a really large um, levator hiatus, a large avulsion, a pretty significant prolapse that, you know, without some kind of support, are just not going to be able to do certain activities. Okay. And that is, that is a reality, right? Yep. There are some people that just shouldn't, that shouldn't, um, shouldn't. There are some people who I wouldn't feel comfortable if they were lifting. Mm-hmm. Now, whether they should or not is up to them. Up to them, yeah. Because we don't have definitive evidence that these things are going to occur. Um, you know, some people, surgical management is the appropriate thing for them. But that's certainly not my, I don't make those decisions. You know, that's discussing with a pelvic PT and a gynecologist about what's the best way to go forward with managing their symptoms. But if it's things like heaviness and if it's symptomatic as opposed to physical problems, um, I like to go conservative. Yeah, I really like to go conservative first before looking at surgery. So let's talk about some of the conservative options. So in your toolkit, so let's say I've come to see you. I've got a stage two anterior prolapse, anterior wall prolapse. I've got a little bit of heaviness. Um, I really, I've just got back to CrossFit. Um, I've noticed that I feel it with a, a squat, uh, my back squat. Um, other than that, I'm not too bad. Um, what are some of the things that you would look for in terms of when I'm training? And what do you find are some of maybe some good tips that work, tend to work for quite a few people? Yeah. Um, so the first thing that I do is when I'm listening to you give me the history of what's going on, I'm listening for all the exercises that you tell me that you get symptoms on. So in this case, it's a barbell back squat. Um, but also things that you're scared of or that you don't think you can do because <laughs> they're the things that we go do. 
Um, so the first thing I'd do is after I'd gotten all the information that I need to through asking questions and listening and making sure that we're on the same page, we go out and we load you up with a bar and we just start squatting. And I ask you to coach me on what you're doing as if you're teaching me how to squat. So it'd be like, okay, Marika, you're going to do a barbell back squat. I need you to coach me like you're showing me. I'm your friend who's never lifted before. I want you to tell me everything that you're doing so I can get an idea of how you're doing it. And so, you know, they'll say, okay, I approach the bar and I do this with my hands and, you know, I, I get under. And like everybody's got a little bit of a different routine. So I like to hear what they're thinking, compare it to what they're doing because sometimes what they think they're doing and what they're actually doing may be different. So maybe they're using different words to describe something that I would use. So I might use different words to describe the same thing. So it helps me get on the same page. And then um, I, I get them to a point where they first start feeling it, if they're going to feel it during lifting. So they're going to say, well, I tend to feel it when I do bubble back squat. Well, then we'll do that. I'll get them to feel it. They're doing it anyway. It's not to me, it's not anything out of the ordinary. It's not like, okay, you've never done this before. Let's risk it. Let's go do it. Like, it's not like that. Um, and then from there... Hey everybody, sorry to interrupt the episode. Just wanted to quickly throw you to the Myotherapy Reading Room where for less than $50 a year, you get awesome information. Less than $100 a year, you get all of that information as well as some extra notes and different... Uh, types of better quality information. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash myotherapy reading room. It's worth considering to help improve your practice. Now back to the show. Thank you. We start playing with things. So I'm looking at how they breathe, uh, what their beliefs are about breathing. I'm looking at how they brace and what their beliefs are about bracing. I'm looking about at their technique and what their beliefs are about their technique. Um, you know, so foot, if we go from the bottom foot position, where the knees track, where the knees should go, when the knees should go, um, you know, what sequence of events are happening, you know, what the hips are doing, how much they're driving out through the hips, through the knees, uh, what their abs are doing, what they tilt their pelvis at, whether they stop with a butt wink or whether they're happy with a butt wink, um, back position, trunk inclination where the weight is in their feet, uh, head position, where they're looking while they squat, um, what they're doing with their throat, with their accessory muscles. Are they trying to relax it? Are they trying to tense it? How they're holding the bar on their back, where they hold the bar on their back. Um, all of these things are important to me because they give me things to change, right? And so, you know, you, you only need to do something different and have it associated with success to be successful as far as I'm concerned. We can have all the complicated theories in the world as to why this way is better than that way, but ultimately we're just looking for a change in symptoms. And once we get that, well, then we move forwards into, um, uh, you know, look, finding as many different ways to do the activity as symptom-free as possible with as much load as possible because nothing magical ever happens in you know in the easy ranges <laughs> 
on that, I know you are, are, are very, very um, keen on uh, variability in movement. Do you think, though, for the um, low rep, high weight um, lifts, that there is a more optimal method in terms of biomechanics? <laughs> I know I'm putting you on the spot here, but I'm just thinking, I'm sorry. you know, when you're lifting 20 kilos, you know, if you've got a little bit more trunk flexion, it's probably not going to make much, much of a big deal. Or if your knees go a certain way, maybe not such a big deal. If you've got 150 kilos on your back, are the biomechanics, do you think, more important for, for think performance and for um, reducing injury risk? Symptoms. Right. So we're not talking about symptoms, just performance and injury risk. I'm not talking about pelvic floor symptoms for this one. <laughs> okay. Um, so for high performance, I think we have to work out what the best way for you is. For sure. I have no problem with that. But, you know, we know from the research into elite athletes at the high level, they have variability of technique anyway. So they, they do things differently. There's a margin for error. And my job as a legal performance enhancer is to maximize, don't spit that coffee, <laughs> is to maximize. <laughs> They're going to bottle you and sell you on the, on the supermarket shelf. <laughs> uh, my, my job is to maximise how much um, variability you can tolerate at the highest levels because that's the difference between saving a lift and dropping a lift. That's the difference between making it and not making it. Um, and so I call it the pyramid of performance. So as you go up... Um, in load, the variability, like a pyramid, decreases. Um, you know, I can use a PVC pipe and do a snatch and have it so that my arms are at 135 degrees, not over my base of support, and still pretend that I'm doing a snatch because it's extremely light load. Whereas I can't even do that with, you know, 30 kilos in my hands. I just wouldn't be able to hold it there. Um, and so as we go up in load, the range of motion decreases. Um, but it doesn't come to a point where you've got only the single, uh, the single perfect, everything is aligned technique. That does exist. You know, if you've ever done any sort of lifting before, you'll, you'll understand when I say it just, it's magic. It just feels like, wow. You know, you do this thing, you sit in the bottom of a snatch and you think, holy crap, it's here. Like, yes. Yeah, what's that? Did anyone get it on video? What? <laughs> uh, yeah, did it really happen? Was it on video? Um, <laughs> it's a magical feeling. Um, and, you know, weightlifters will train to maximize how often they get that feeling. I mean, in fact, they will train success. They, they often don't like having failed reps because they don't want to train failure. Um, so, you know, I think you made a really that sort of variety. I think you, you made a really important, uh, important point a second ago about um, the fact that there's a variability between variability between people. And some of that is, is based on structural fact factors, right? So some people have got really long femurs. Some people have got hips that have minimal um, internal rotation or external rotation, longer trunk lengths. I mean, there's all these, 
factors, ankle range, there's all these factors that we need to take into account. And so um, two people can successfully do uh, a lift looking really quite different. But it might Absolutely. be for them. Yeah. And I love weightlifting channels like hook grip and and those sorts of things where they where they just have super slow mo of all the best lifters, and it's so cool. Like you just see, because <laughs> like I love biomechanics. Time. It is, it is, and you know what? The the women have beautiful technique. Like I think women are more technical than guys. Guys guys can muscle through things, mm-hmm. um, but but women tend to have better technique. I've had quite a lot of coaches say, watch women lifters if you want to improve your technique. Um, so, you know, it's, um, it's exciting. I love biomechanics. I love all the technical, structural, talky, physics sort of stuff. I love all that. <laughs> and I have to force myself to be like, I know. maybe it's how not much, that different. How much does it matter? Maybe, I don't know. How much does it maybe matter? it does. <laughs> I know I love physics. <laughs> Too. we're physics nerds hey you talked a bit, a bit about breath technique before so let's, mm. let's let's talk about that because a lot of people want to know about breathing with lifting and i think a lot of people do have beliefs about breathing uh with lifting um what are you going to say so let let's say for someone who does not have any pelvic floor dysfunction how would they do a heavy lift is there any optimal breathing strategy and if someone does does it should it be different yeah um bottom line everybody who lifts heavy has to modify their breath in some way you're gonna have to create more intra-abdominal pressure um and so that means holding your breath or at the very least creating back pressure by pursing your lips or whatever um you know I'd love to get back on that intravaginal sensor and, and test a few things on breathing. But um, uh, the, the breathing that I like personally is the one that isn't the fullest breath. Just like your bicep curl is not your strongest when you're at your most lengthened for your bicep, but your inner range seems to be a lot easier to complete a bicep curl. So too um your breathing you know you can over inflate and i see a lot of people take a big breath in and i understand the ball of pressure that they're trying to create it's just that sometimes the ball can be too big um so ideally it's for me it's take a big breath in and then breathe out somewhere between 10 to 50 percent of what you what big breath in is for you some people, their big breath in, they don't really go the most that they can breathe in. They just stop at the level that they know is good for them. Um, but I like to see variability. I think it's a fallacy that you can lift without um, holding your breath. There's some, there's some reference in the literature somewhere. It's in the strength and conditioning literature that says um, you have to you know, you don't have to breathe. You don't have to hold your breath until 80 or 80% or more of your 1RM. And that's based off a study of 30 people, of which six people were on a leg press 
And that was a bit about holding breath. And they found that they didn't need to hold their breath until 80%, like on a, on a leg press. You know what I mean? Like you're upside down, you're fully supported. You don't have to brace anything because everything is bracing for you. Um, yeah. So, you know, if you want to base your, your percentages on, on looking at six people, I look at six people in a day. Um, you know, I can tell you, I find that from about 50% onwards, people will need to, to modify in some way. And one of the best ways is actually just to sing a note um, while you move or while you do the lift. And if you hear the, the note go up in pitch at all or even stop momentarily, then you're modifying your breath. And you're doing that automatically. Yeah, and that pitch change represents a uh, pressure increase for me. Um, your your, your pressure is going to increase anyway, but as soon as you narrow off that glottis, you're really trying to, to brace through the canister using pressure. So given that there will be this increase in intra-abdominal pressure because you have this extra volume in the abdomen and you've added a breath hold, what are you thinking in terms of the pelvic floor? Are you cueing pelvic floor to meet that pressure? Or do you just really look at positioning and other strategies first? Yeah. So uh, I say on my courses that less than 5%, it's probably even less than that. I actually don't know the real number, but I rarely go through the whole breathing pelvic floor, transversus abdominis, lumbar multifidus, bind it all up together combine it somehow into the routine that you do before you lift. Like I, I don't do that so often. However, there are people that really do need that process. So I teach it. Um, for me, understanding that the pelvic floor is that dynamic, um, dynamic structure that meets the pressure automatically. You don't even need to think about it. It's already trying to do it. And then we can have issues like nerves being um, not working properly or timing and coordination or other things that your body is doing or external factors are doing or internal factors are doing that might preload the pelvic floor or the pelvic region, which can affect all sorts of coordination things. Um, so that dynamic catching of pressure and release, so I call it catch and release, you know, you catch a presser and then you give it back. Um, it's like catching a ball, you know. Um, if you turn your pelvic floor on nice and firm and high, it's almost like you're, you're trying to stick a cork inside a bottle that's upside down. And that's the image that people tend to have of trying to stop leaking, for example, or their prolapse. But what happens is, is that you end up like a kid trying to catch a ball, a two-year-old learning how to catch a ball and you throw the ball at them and they've got no give at all. They just leave their hands there. Sometimes magically it stays, but often it bounces out of their hands, kind of like the Australian cricket team sometimes this summer. And, um, you know, you end up with a drop catch. And, and so if you're stiff and rigid in your pelvic floor, you're not able to catch that pressure, use your eccentric ability to absorb that pressure and then give it back when you need, when the pressure comes down and you can give more support. Um, so I'm looking at that. I'm looking to see when they do a pelvic floor contraction, are they bearing down 
quite often if they have pelvic floor dysfunction, I'll feel externally with permission and consent to see if they're bearing down. And I'm also looking for other strategies and beliefs like I've got to brace my core to be strong. I can't let my diastasis dome or bulge. I'm, I'm looking for all these different things because they're variables that I can change to do something different. Did I answer the question? I think so. Yeah, I think you did. Um, <laughs> with, I'm just thinking about, you're talking about this um, catch and release, this uh, eccentric sort of like shock absorption capacity of the pelvic floor is really what you're talking about, uh, which is yes. what we train for the rest of like the lower limb if we were going to do a landing strategy. It's, lot, it's, what, it's a lot of what we do for ACL um, uh, rehab, et cetera. So you're looking at that ability of the pelvic floor to take that load of the abdominal contents under pressure and then once that loads off to be able to basically recoil and spring back. So I understand where you're coming from there. How do you know it's happening? And if it's not, how do you know if it's automatic basically or not? Because there are those people with fascial defects or you said, you know, potentially um, nerve um, issues, neural issues as well, maybe post childbirth. Um, they may, there may not be that automatic um, capacity of the pelvic floor. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not going to lie to you. I have to go by symptoms if they present with symptoms. Otherwise, I need a pelvic floor physio to do an internal and upright for me and tell me what's going on, how much perineal descent is occurring, how, what happens when they brace to lift, what happens when they lift, if possible, um, you know, within the confines of safety for the client and for the therapist, of course. Um, but, you know, honestly, it's hard to say without an internal examination <laughs> what's going on in there. And I, I don't look. I don't get people undressed and ask them to squat or deadlift. I, I touch with all their clothes on still, unless they've got super thick jeans, I'll get some, I'll get them into shorts, but even then it's, it's over shorts or leggings and, and their underwear. They don't undress for that. Um, it's a, it's a guess, uh, from any, anything that is not internal is a guess. And even with an internal, it's still a guess because, you can't do an internal on someone while they're doing a one hour, one RM of 120 kilo deadlift. Like it's just not going to happen. You can't do that safely. Um, it's going to be awkward. They're probably not going to give you a one RM because you've got your <laughs> fingers inside them. So, and, because, and, and you're going to be a little bit nervous having that kind of weight sitting over top of your head, quite frankly. Um, no, yeah. thank, thank you for your honesty with that, because I think this is something that is, is very challenging. Um, it's, it's, Absolutely. That, it's an area that I want to do a lot more of with my, with my training is actually, um, yeah, immediately post lift what's happening, but also have a look at, because, you know, we know from other studies, right, that there is some perineal descent for some people after exercise that, you know, goes away quite quickly. And is that a problem or is that not like we don't, there's just so much that we don't know and we don't know yeah. whether, um, short term perineal descent is, you know, or pressure on the pelvic floor is going to necessarily result in long-term problems. I mean, there's just, what happens if it results in improved performance later? Because, you know, like after you do exercise, let's just say you do leg day and you walk like a baby giraffe for the next few days, like your legs get stronger. But for a short while, stairs, even sitting on the toilet and getting up off the toilet become a challenge. So, you know, it's, it's a real tough balance. And, and nobody that I know of 
is saying, hey, let's ignore the physiological limits of tissue and go, go risk it. You know, like everything I do is gradual loading within what they're already doing at the gym. You know, very rarely do I ask them to do more than what they're doing at the gym. And if they do, they, they do it with, um, they, they do it with full understanding and we progress there slowly. You know, the, the other, the other way, like, I mean, one of the ways that I do use, and I've mentioned before is that empty vaginal cone or, or their pessary. Like if you feel that slide occur, I just teach you to stop there for now, not forever, just for now. Yeah. So that you can, so that you can learn to wait for your weakest team member to come in and, um, and get stronger, get fitter, get more coordinated, work with the other members of your team being all the other muscles and bones and joints in your brain to, to provide you with a performance that you're looking for. You know, we can always bench the weak player, but that never sat well with me as a coach. Um, <laughs> I, I don't like doing that just ignoring it and building everything else up. It's not good. <laughs> it's an orchestra. It's a bit of this. Yeah, you, you, you train as a team, you suffer as a team, you win as a team, and so you should train like a team too. So, Anthony, we have about 10 minutes. I really want to, because um, you mentioned bracing, can we talk about belts? Sure. Um, so let's talk about lifting belts because that's something that um, comes up in conversation a lot. What's your, what are your feelings about lifting belts? And if people are going to use a belt, uh, what's the best way to use it? Um, and in particular, I'm talking about people with pelvic floor dysfunction. Sure. So lots of people use belts for two different reasons. Number one is to increase performance and a belt will help you lift more. Uh, the second reason is for support due to either an actual or a perceived risk of back injury or some sort of injury that they've had in the past. So uh, people will often use a belt to support. Um, again, this comes back to the weakest team member link. For me, if you're going to be competitive and five or 10 kilos makes a difference to you making it to the Olympics or not, probably not going to tell you to stop using a belt. I'm going to ask you to train with a belt differently, but you know, I'm not going to say, oh, no, belts are evil. So I understand why belts are used. For the general person doing general things, I personally have a preference not to use a belt. I personally recommend that they consider not using a belt so that they can learn how to get the abdominal wall and the pelvic floor working to provide the support that they're looking for. Because a belt, there's three different uses of the belt. Um, the, the, the belt will usually increase your intra-abdominal pressure. And because you've got a firm synthetic or leather um, support around your abdomen, the pressure can't escape there anymore and it'll go up and down. You've just increased the stiffness of the container, which means that you've got less elastic absorbency. So um, the three uses of the belt, are the most common one is to pull it relatively tight. You might be able to get a finger between your belly and the belt and then big breath in. And I've heard too many times people taught to brace through the belt. So you push into the belt um, with the pressure that you're generating and then you do your lift. Um, 
I find this the most problematic, um, you know, for guys as well as women, um, you know, the, the, the pressure tends to escape above and below, so pelvic floor dysfunction. You'll see high diastasis in guys over the site of the belt just because sometimes they can weaken and, and develop a diastasis there. Um, you'll get hiatus hernia and heartburn symptoms from both people. Um, so there's that, the, the super tight brace through the belt. The one that I prefer is that you put it on not so tight, you put it on to the diameters of your waist at rest. And when you brace, you only brace to the belt, not through the belt. Then if you get in trouble, you can brace into the belt to save the lift if it's competition. Otherwise, I recommend you just drop the bar most of the time. Um, and then the third way is very, very rare. I've only heard it once or twice. And that is you put it on relatively loose. It gives you support in the bottom. You're bracing. You're not using the belt, basically. It's there in case of emergency. Uh, and it tends to be more like a safety blanket than a supportive performance enhancing structure at that time. Thank you. Thank you for outlining that. So as just, if I heard you correctly, Anthony, ideally, especially if they're not, not, if you're not performing in the Olympics, try and go without a belt. If you need to go, if you need to use a belt, uh, put it on just the diameter of your abdomen. And if you need to just brace just to touch basically the, the belt, but don't try and bulge it out and like you're trying to split open your, um, <laughs> your, your belt. That's it. Brace two, not through. Yeah, nice. We have, in the last couple of minutes, let's talk a little bit about diastasis. Um, we have a lot of people who are worried about diastasis and um, lifting weights. So I get uh, postnatal ladies who come to see me for diastasis and they're actually really concerned about um, doing a deadlift or um, doing a squat. What is your experience with women, say in the first six to 12 months postnatal and diastasis? And are there any, um, are there any lifts in particular that you think that you would tend to avoid or put sort of towards the latter end of their rehab process? Whoa. You see, that's a tough question, Marika, because for me, it's not the lift that's the problem. It's how they do the lift that's the problem. So I could say like squat and deadlift because of the way that, you know, you, you decrease the abdominal size but they might be doing those things just fine. We had somebody, excuse me, just on the course recently in Belfast who was fine doing it. Um, she was worried by it. She's pregnant and she was fine doing a squat, but when she did rowing on the erg, that's when you saw a much more of her diastasis show up. Um, how you do the exercise is more important. Um, you know, you said six to 12 months postnatally, well, then are they still breastfeeding because their hormonal status might make a difference? Are they, um, what are they doing in their everyday life? Do they have a physical job? Do they have three kids under four and they've got to cut them around and in and out and pick them up and carrying them and they're carrying their baby because the baby's unsettled and yet they've got to run around doing things with the other kids. Otherwise, they're going to go kill themselves running out on the road or, you know, kill each other because they're fighting. Do you know what I mean? Like, 
what's their everyday life like as well because that's going to affect how they train too you come into a situation you're fatigued you know ideally I would love for you to be able to exercise every day, have a nanny take care of the kids, have a cook, be able to prepare all your nutritious meals. But let's face it, we don't live in Hollywood land for most of us. It's not going to happen. And it's not normal. It is not normal to do that. And if you get to do that, I think, you know, you're in a very privileged and fortunate position to be able to take care of your body that way. Most people don't have that. Um, for six to 12 months after they give birth. So, um, yeah, anyway. Um, that was slightly tangential, but I think... <laughs> bottom line is I'm not going to give you a list of exercises. Things that I would look at are the exercises you want to do. So things yep. like a powerlifting style bench press, where you've got the elevated chest, you've got the back arch. Um, I would want to have a look to see how you're doing that so that I could see if you were stressing the tissue unnecessarily in a, in a, well, where you're exceeding the limits, so to speak, or you're increasing significantly your risk of making things worse. Um, same as squat, deadlift, lunge, step up. Basically, I, I want to see how you bend over and twist and pick something up like 15 kilos because that's how much your pram weighs, 35 pounds, you know. I want to see how you do that. I want to see how you go and get things from a cupboard with a little bit of weight because, you know, maybe you're pulling down four plates. Okay. Well, what does that look like? How are you doing that? So the lifts for me are not so important as to, to how you're doing them and, and what you're doing. Awesome. And uh, I feel the same way. And for me, it's basically just getting them to show me in the gym, show me, show me what it is you're doing right now. What is it that you want to be able to do? Let's look at the way you're doing it. Let's, let's look and feel what's happening at that abdominal wall. I, I think there just are some beliefs, uh, certainly online, about things like, I mean, this woman I saw on Wednesday, she said, oh, I know that I'm not allowed to deadlift because exercises where you're bending over are really bad for diastasis. Um, mm. And that's, that's, where, <laughs> that's where I was going. And try be a mother without bending over. <laughs> yeah, and I, I said to her, you know, like, do, do you pick up your laundry basket? Yes. Do you, do you pick up your, your pram? Do you, your baby is uh, 10 kilos. So, you know, this is life. Um, and I think it's really important that women have that opportunity to actually try these things and, and find out what their bodies are capable of without giving these blanket rules. So um, that was awesome. I'm just going to quickly wrap up because I do have to actually get my child to a piano lesson. Um, but what I, what I just want to say for everyone listening is that we've done this, this, this was very much on the fly. Um, I told Anthony five minutes before we, we were doing the interview that we're going to do it today. We would really love to hear from the audience if there are aspects of lifting, because we'll we're more than happy to do another one, right, Anthony, on lifting? Oh, yeah. This is yeah. just an introductory, you know. This yeah. is not the definitive <laughs> word, and I don't know everything. So we, we'd, we'd love to, have, um, to hear from the audience, like, what, what is it that, uh, what are other questions that you have? Um, in regards to lifting or CrossFit or anything you want to pick Anthony's brains about for the high-level athletes, if you can um, send us a message in the Facebook group, just put it below this um, this interview. That would be really helpful for us because we want to know. We basically we want to put out the information that people want to hear. So that would be amazing. Um, but I want to say thank you, Anthony, for uh, letting me terrorise you today. <laughs> anytime, happy to be terrorised by you anytime. 
<laughs> thank you so much. And thank you for making fun of me. I appreciate that. Oh, that's that is. <laughs> if, my I, if I heard you correctly, if I heard you correctly. <laughs> <laughs> that that was my pleasure. I love taking the picture. Good fun. <laughs> and right, I we'll, welcome it. <laughs> we'll see you next time. Hey everybody, thank you for listening to the podcast. Um, I just want to have a quick word about our sponsor, the Myotherapy Reading Room. The Myotherapy Reading Room does provide a curated keyword indexed feed of topical peer review papers, podcasts, clinical practice guidelines and systematic reviews together with all the links for the relevant papers, the resources that come with it and all the uh, specially selected um, things to help support uh, the clinicians who subscribe to this service in the application of evidence-based practice, in particular for musculoskeletal pain and injury presentations, including chronic pain. Uh, its rapidly growing subscriber base includes physiotherapists, osteopaths, chiropractors, exercise physiologists, myotherapists, strength and conditioning coaches, fitness professionals, massage therapists, and others from Australia, Canada, United States, the United Kingdom and various places around the world. Um, I know Elaine who helps run this um, myotherapy reading room and she's an epidemiologist, epidemiologist. Uh, she goes through the papers. She's the one who's providing the episode notes for you on these podcasts and um, she's fantastic with making sure that any papers that come up that are relevant um, she helps to make sure that she brings it to your attention. So support the Myotherapy Reading Room. It's $3 a month or $6 a month. Seriously, that is under $100 a year and that's Australian dollars, I suspect. Um, it's very, very cheap uh, to get somebody pointing to, uh, at all the good resources that are coming out so that you can stay on top of your game so that you can start seeing the things that are relevant for your clinical practice. So go have a look. Uh, thank you very much. Well, that's it for this episode. Please be sure to hit like if you enjoyed this episode and leave any comments or questions below because we'd really love to hear from you. If you haven't already hit subscribe, please do so now so that you can be kept notified of when we release a new episode. Otherwise, thank you for listening and we look forward to having you back with us for another episode of the Women's Health Podcast.